This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Military History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Porter Blackburn, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Steve Vogel about his new book, Betrayal in Berlin, the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. Uh, And I wanted to say right out of the box, This book, Betrayal in Berlin, is fantastic. I read it from cover to cover. Uh, Just a great story. Uh, Interesting, informative, exciting. A lot of plot twists. The characters, uh, the personalities, everything. Uh, It was just a highly enjoyable book. Great. Well, thank you for saying so. Yeah. Yeah, just really, really nice. Um, so I, I want to be careful I don't give away too many of the interesting bits of information about this book, but there are so many. So I just wanted to start at the top, just at a high level uh, for our listeners. This book is about a tunnel, but it's a very special tunnel that was built in Berlin, Germany in the 1950s by American and British intelligence to tap into phone lines used by the Soviet Union. And I want to get into the body of this book with you, Steve. Uh, But before we do, I want to really quickly go through your bio, and then we'll get into the book itself. So for our listeners, Steve is a veteran journalist who reported for the Washington Post for more than two decades. He covered the fall of the Berlin Wall and the first Gulf War, as well as military operations in Somalia, Rwanda, the Balkans, and Iraq. His coverage of the war in Afghanistan was part of a package of Washington Post stories selected as a finalist for the 2002 Pulitzer Prize. He also covered the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon. Steve is also the author of Through the Perilous Fight, Six Weeks That Saved the Nation, and The Pentagon, A History. Now, on top of all that, Steve was born in Cold War Berlin. Additionally. Steve's father was stationed in Berlin, working for the CIA from 1957 to 1962. So this is an amazing background for Steve. So I'd like to start off with my first question, Steve. Could you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Well, it was it was some of those ties you just mentioned. You know, having been born there, um, a little bit uh, after the you know the tunnel operation took place. Um, but uh, before the wall uh, was built. So I was there when the wall went up, in fact. And, um, you know, my dad used to joke later that uh, that was no coincidence. They'd, they'd put it up to keep me out. But uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, went back as a, as a student. I, you know, I studied uh, German in high school and, uh, and in college. And I went back on a bike trip through Europe and went uh-huh. through Ch- uh, Checkpoint Charlie yeah. uh, in the, uh, uh, late seventies. And then, um, fortunately ended up, uh, back in Germany as a journalist, uh, working as a reporter, uh, writing for the army times, uh, as well as uh, stringing for some other papers and happened to arrive in Germany in 1989, just a, a couple of months before the fall of the Berlin wall. So uh-huh. I ended up covering that. And, uh, initially I'd only planned on, on being in Germany for a few months, but I ended up staying there for five years and, uh, you know, covered uh, the end of the Cold War, the um, uh, collapse of the Warsaw Pact, and uh, all the all the amazing events that accompanied that. And just based on that, 
um, my father had died uh, uh, quite a while ago, but uh, been in touch with many of his uh, closest friends and sometimes mm-hmm. would hear some of the stories of the old days in, in Cold War Berlin. And um, I just had always felt drawn to um, that era and uh, mm-hmm. managed, ended up picking this story about the tunnel as, as being, you know, one of the, I think, uh, most amazing, less known Cold War stories. Yeah. Yeah. And what an amazing story it is. And I have to say, when I was reading the book, I had to keep stopping and thinking to myself, this is a real story. This is not fiction. This is not a spy thriller that somebody kind of uh, cooked up on their own. It's all true. And it it was just unbelievable. Yeah. I I kept thinking of that. A lot of that stuff you just can't make up. It's sometimes better. I know. (laughs) To just let the truth uh, uh, tell itself because, uh, yeah, a story like this especially. Yeah. Yeah. and I just love the way all the pieces, so to speak, fit together uh, as, as, as you read through the book, you introduce um, a lot of, to me, fascinating people. And they're, in fact, to me, there's just so many interesting characters in the book. Maybe we don't have enough time to go through all of them, but I want to call out a couple of them, if you don't mind talking about them during this interview. And the first one that comes to mind is a central figure in the book who is a gentleman named George Blake, who was a mole for the Soviet Union. And could you talk to us a little bit about that particular person? Yeah. I mean, uh, even when this this uh, book picks up the narrative, he, he'd already led uh, quite a storybook life. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, his, uh, his father had um, been a... a, a come from Turkey and had fought for uh, the British during World War I. He'd become a British citizen and um, had gone to Holland at the end of World War I with the British Army and and um, married a Dutch woman. And their their um, their first child was, was, they named George after King George. And um, uh, George Blake, uh, his father died when he was uh, – quite young and the the family was in uh, uh pretty much bankrupt and George was sent to um live with wealthy relatives in Egypt who saw to his schooling and uh, he comes back to Holland um just in time for the outbreak of World War II and ends up uh, uh missing the evacuation with his mother to to go to England and uh instead lives uh, as as a you know, basically a 14 year old, uh, school boy becomes a, uh, a, um, more or less a courier for the Dutch resistance and living underground for the next year, um, undertaking all kinds of, um, pretty dangerous missions, delivering messages and so forth. And he begins to fear that he's going to be arrested by the Nazis and makes, makes his escape through Europe and ends up, uh, um, uh, arriving in England and, you know, serving in the Royal Navy. And because of his skills as a uh, underground and, and language skills that he had, he's recruited by British intelligence. And um, by the uh, the time that uh, our story begins, he is, uh, he's been sent to, to Korea as the head of um, the SIS, British Secret Intelligence Service station in in Korea. And he once again, he's arrived just in time for the outbreak of a war, um, with yeah, he's he's always in these uh, uh, in these incredible uh, situations, and he's taken prisoner by the North Koreans um, and uh, undergoes all kinds of um, horrendous treatment, along with a, a number of American GIs who he was held prisoner with. But um, without going into too much of the story, he comes back um, uh, to England when he's released, uh, given a hero's welcome back in England, and. He's assigned to a very sensitive role in British intelligence, but unbeknownst to, to anyone, um, he has made the decision to turn sides and work for the KGB. Yeah. And you kind of touch on something that I kept thinking as I read the book, which I enjoyed so much, is that there are so many parts of this book where you, the reader thinks, okay, so I think I know where we've progressed to. And then the book goes in a different direction. Or a, a person makes a different decision, or something. And I thought George Blake uh, was such an interesting character that he seems so agile 
just he's just dealing with life situations over and over again for just years and years on end. Yeah, to this day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to this day. Yeah, so I thought he was extremely interesting. Um, and of course, the other person, if you don't mind just chatting with us a little bit about, was Mr. Bill Harvey, uh, who was with the CIA, and he's characterized as the brains behind the American and British effort to build the tunnel. But I thought he was so colorful and so interesting, and I love the way you described him in the book. Can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Bill Harvey? Yeah, I mean he's he's uh, one of these these guys that uh, you would think was was drawn from a, a spy fiction novel, but uh, he's he's not at all your your typical or or sort of the perceived um, uh, typical CIA officer of the 1950s. You know, one of these Eastern establishment um, Ivy League type uh, characters. And, and instead, this is a you know he's basically a uh, a, a guy from Indiana. A, a G-man. He'd worked for the FBI, heavy drinker, you know, big bulky guy and uh, quite uncouth in many ways, but at the same time, v- very smart. And uh, for the FBI, he becomes uh, one of their top Nazi hunters during the war, a, a guy who um, is able to break up some of the Nazi spy rings uh, operating in the United States during World War II. And then uh, at the end of the war, he is turned on to uh, Soviet um, infiltration into the United States, and he becomes uh, really the leader of the first efforts to counter Soviet espionage in the United States after World War II. And uh, he he ends up falling afoul of J. Edgar Hoover, the the head of the FBI, because of you know his his um, uh, tendency to thumb his nose at authority and. His his heavy drinking uh, leads him to you know fall asleep in his car in the middle of Rock <laughs> Creek Park in D.C. and and um, he um, he ends up quitting the FBI and the CIA, which was a you know the new intelligence uh, operation, was only too too happy to to hire him because they they desperately needed someone with his expertise about Soviet intelligence and he he found a new home there. Yeah, I, I I found that character so fascinating throughout the whole book, and and like you're saying, he was very effective at his job at the same time, but he kind of didn't fit the mold that maybe people would have of a person achieving those types of goals. Yeah, um, he, he had a real nose for a spy. He was just, I mean, he's yeah. the guy who ends up really fingering Kim Philby as a spy for the Soviets. You know, when yeah, when yeah. other people, including the you know the famous James Angleton. Um, were more or less lulled into thinking that that uh, you know Philby was completely trustworthy. It's it's Harvey who who begins to suspect that, and so he he's uh, you know he's extremely effective for the CIA. Yeah, um, I want to touch on just the the city of Berlin, uh, the locale of where this tunnel ultimately gets built because we are in the 1950s and you touch on it if a couple of passages in your book that touches on this but I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about it in this interview is that what made what was Berlin like in the 1950s why was it so special yeah it was it was a pretty unique place uh, in the world at that point I mean it was really the epicenter of um, Cold War espionage and that a lot of that is by virtue of geography. Um, you know, of course, Berlin is situated in uh, the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. It's in in the borders of East Germany. Um, yet it's a, a city that's occupied by the four um, Allied powers of World War II. So you have uh, the United States, Great Britain, and uh, France on the western side of, of Berlin, each operating their own sector. Then you have the Soviet sector on the east side, and um, this is really the one window that uh, the Western Allies have behind the Iron Curtain, because we'd had very little success operating any kind of espionage operations um, behind the Iron Curtain. Stalin was rolling up any any uh, attempts we made to to put agents uh, into into the Soviet Union, so we were getting very little information of, about this huge Red Army presence that. Uh, maintained, um, uh, you know, a large footprint in Eastern Europe, including, of course, in East Germany. 
And so Berlin is, is kind of our window behind the, the Iron Curtain. And it's also a place where you have this free flow. This, remember, this is, of course, before the wall is built. So even though it's a divided city, there's free transit across the borders, the sector borders. So 10,000 people or more every day are going back and forth, you know, to jobs, to visit relatives, to buy, you know, go to the stores. And a good number of these people are um, involved in espionage of some sort or another. So you have, um, you know, the U.S. is recruiting people from the East to to bring the information over to the West and, uh, um, of course, vice versa. So, it, you know, it was described as one CIA officer there at the time as, as this cross between Casablanca and Dodge City because it's, a you know, a lot of kidnappings going on and all kinds of stuff. So it's also the epicenter, the, the center of um, communications for Eastern Europe. You know, all the uh, communication lines come into Berlin uh, like the hub of a wheel. So you have all these spokes coming in, connecting to, you know, Bucharest, Moscow, and then um, other points east and then onto the west. So this this makes Berlin uh, a vital uh, place for both the east and west during the Cold War. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating the way you explained that in the book. And again, I want to, again, mention the name of the book for our listeners. It's Betrayal in Berlin. The True Story of the Cold War's Most Audacious Espionage Operation, written by Steve Vogel, who we are honored to have with us on our podcast for an interview today. Um, so, yeah, the, I just thought that was so interesting, the way you explained to, to the readers, folks, this is what Berlin was like in the 1950s. And then the book gets to the point where it starts talking about the decision to dig the tunnel and all the various people involved with this, this decision. Um and it seems like it, it got approval at very, very high levels within the U.S. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, uh, the, the U.S., of course, is, is desperate for good information. Um, Eisenhower um, was, had, had uh, been sworn in as president, and he was very frustrated at the lack of, um, of almost any intelligence he was getting about the, the Soviets. And uh, he, was, uh, he was quite fearful that uh, particularly now that the Soviets had exploded their own nuclear weapons, they'd managed to, uh, through um, uh, spy ring, get, get a hold of some of the Manhattan Project secrets. They'd, um, they'd explode their own nuclear weapon uh, in 1949, then a hydrogen bomb in 1953. And um, Eisenhower was desperate for good intelligence. And so was Winston Churchill in Great Britain. Churchill had come back to power. So uh, Eisenhower and Churchill, these comrades from World War II, are, are pushing their intelligence agencies to to get better intelligence. Uh, uh, Eisenhower is actually quite fearful that he might be put in a position where he has to launch his own preemptive strike against the Soviets out of fear that they're going to launch one against him. So he, he's, uh, he's seeing this as a, you know, possible nuclear Pearl Harbor and that, that it didn't, uh, it didn't take much to, uh, convince, you know, Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA, uh, to go forward with this, this expensive and, and risky project. And, and it gets the okay from, from Eisenhower and Churchill as well. Yeah. And then uh, there are some passages in the book to talk about the decision-making process as to where they're going to begin digging the tunnel, uh, which I'm not going to get into that too much right now. I suffice it to say it's as interesting as so many sections of this book, just the whole thought process and in addition to just the decision to do it and all the levels of government that were aware of it and felt it was an urgent and important project. Um, and then uh, it just was amazing that George Blake tells the Soviets about the tunnel and they end up doing nothing. And right. Yeah. It, well, you know, uh, one thing to, to keep in mind is even though this gets the, the approval at the, the highest levels of uh, both uh, the U.S. and, and uh, Great Britain, the number of people who know about it is you, you, you're talking about a handful, literally, um, in, in each country. So um, it, it's Bill Harvey, who's running the operation, who, who, who sent to Berlin to, to, to uh, oversee this tunnel. Um, you know, he's got a, a, a base there in Berlin, and even his deputy doesn't know about the tunnel. Uh, he's, he's doing this um, 
in secret from his own staff, essentially. He, he's only got one or two people that he brings into the operation. Um, so, and then um, even though uh, they also have to bring in uh, the Army Corps of Engineers to, to dig the tunnel. But again, um, this is something that's very close hold. And um, you have one uh, team of, of engineers that are put on this assignment. They, they don't even know where they're going to be. They, they, all they're, they're told is they're going to have to dig a tunnel in secret somewhere. And they practice out in New Mexico and, you know, assemble all this equipment that um, has to be sent to, um, to Germany. And um, yeah, so, uh, and George Blake, as you mentioned, becomes aware of this project um, almost from the start uh, because he's, he's overseeing, uh, helping oversee some of these communication intelligence operations. But he uh, is one of perhaps three or four people in British intelligence who know about it. So um, he's, uh, he's in a very vulnerable position. So even though he, he informed, he, he meets on this double decker bus in London um, in early 1954, as, as this project is, is, you know, you know, hasn't even the first spadeful of, of uh, soil hasn't even been dug at this point, but he's, uh, he's reporting to his KGB handler about this, but in the KGB, uh, and when we say the KGB again, um, this is, we're talking a, a, about a, a couple of people, Ivan Serov, the, the head of the KGB is informed about this and he makes the decision that they're, they're not going to tell anybody about this, um, including the KGB chief in, in Berlin is kept in the dark, uh, at least initially. And, and the Red Army, uh, whose lines are, are, gonna, are vulnerable, um, they're, the commander of all uh, Soviet forces in Germany is, is kept in the dark. So uh, the Soviets are very uh, interested in protecting George Blake um, as, as this mole. And if they do anything to block the tunnel, um, Blake is going to be blown sky high. You reminded me of another aspect of the book that I think is so enjoy enjoyable is you have passages where you describe George Blake interacting with somebody from the Soviet Union and how they communicate and how they signal to each other, things of that nature. And it just it's just really interesting. And there's so many sections in the book where it's okay, now George Blake is going to be meeting with so and so. And you talk about how he exchanges information, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, um, well, I was fortunate, um, in, in that some of the people who were in, involved in this story are still alive, or at least, uh, they were still alive. Um, when I was doing the research, both on the American side, the, you know, the British, uh, secret intelligence service, um, and, um, also George Blake, uh, is still alive, 97 years old. And I was able to interview him and, and get details about, um, about how the whole operation works. So, um, uh, also, you know, a lot of research in, in both, uh, well in Germany and the Stasi archives and, um, uh, in uh, London and, and in the United States as well. So I was able to piece together the, the, the story of how it worked. Just approximately how much time would you estimate you spent researching this book? Um, you know, I, I started in, uh, 2014, um, and, you know, immediately my, my first focus was doing interviews because so many of the people involved in this project were, um, at least in their eighties, some in their nineties, one was a hundred years old. And, um, uh, you know, that, that took, uh, well, that really continued throughout the, the years I was working on it, but then, uh, also, uh, the archival research. So really the, um, the, the prime research, um, timeframe was about two years, but even after I started writing, um, I continued doing research, even though, you know, you're trying to buckle down and, and write the story, but you know, I, I'd, I'd get new leads, you know, I'd find a new person to speak to or hear, you know, learn about some archive somewhere that might have uh, relevant records. So, um, the research, um, continued really, um, almost till, uh, its publication, uh, uh, six or seven months ago. Yeah. It's, and again, the, the book is entitled betrayal in Berlin, the true story 
of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation by Steve Vogel that we're interviewing right now. Uh, I'm really encouraging people, get your hands on a copy of this book and read it. I think you will really enjoy it and find it interesting and entertaining. And it comes across so, so much that you did phenomenal research and you actually spoke with George Blake. Is that correct? That is, that's true. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I mean, that was, that was, um, as soon as I decided to do this and, you know, knowing that George Blake was still alive, I, I knew that I, I had to try to, um, interview him. I, you know, I thought it was kind of a long shot. Um, and, um, you know, just finding him to, to, to get in t- uh, contact with him in, in the, in Russia was, was not easy, but, um, um, and you know, I, I more or less, uh, the, my, my first conversation with him, I just called him out of the blue. I, it, it took a while to, you know, trying different sources to find a, um, a phone number for him. I didn't want to go through the, you know, Russian intelligence, uh, services because, you know, basically if you make these requests that they, they just say no. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I thought, well, the best thing to do would, was just kind of to, to call him out of the blue and just, uh, you know, introduce myself and told him I was working on this book about the tunnel. And, uh, yeah, he was, he was, he was receptive, um, and, um, ended up uh, talking to him, uh, a, a second time more in depth. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was fortunate for sure. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to move on to a section of the book, uh, and again, just very interesting, entertaining passages uh, about the actual digging of the tunnel. And you've touched on it already, just the staffing of it and the fact that you'd have people who really, they didn't know other people or they didn't really know what was going on, but they were involved with something. And just all the um, thought that went into digging the tunnel, how to making it a success, essentially. And I, I, I remember one passage and correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, didn't the Americans and British actually decide to build a phony radar site or something to to cover up where they bu- begun bu- digging the tunnel? Yeah, I mean, that that was um, one of uh, several covers that, that were used. And it, w- it was almost, you know, kind of an impromptu thing that, that led to the radar station. Um, but, um, I mean, the, the first thing they had to uh, come up with was, um, because they were digging this tunnel from, you know, it was a quarter mile long tunnel and they are doing it from uh, a point, uh, you know, in uh, the right on the American Soviet sector border where um, kind of a more rural part of Berlin where anything they do is quite visible to the, to the Soviets and East German guards who were, who were along the border there. Um and if they start, you know, digging a, a tunnel and, and carting away soil, that's going to be quite obvious to, to you know, anyone. Um, so they did decide to build a warehouse, an army warehouse on this site um, and use the warehouse. Instead of like trucking off the, the fill, they just store all the, the, the dirt, the soil in the, the warehouse itself. And, uh, you know, that that um, was the first kind of cover for this this project that it was just some weird army warehouse but then they just you know they they decided well let, let's um let's you know they they're going to be kind of suspicious about all this activity at this warehouse we should give some sort of reason for all this activity and they came up with the idea of putting uh, radar dishes on the top because um they were pretty close to a soviet airfield there and um it was a logical place to have a radar intercept station and in fact um the, I you know, interviewed the the CIA's communication site um, director who who was overseeing that part of the operation, and he just decided that, you know, heck, let's make it a real radar. The be- best way to make mm-hmm. it look real was to make it a real one. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, and and so they they brought in Army Signal uh, Corps soldiers who don't know about the tunnel. Um, they're kept they're in a separate. You know, even though this is a small installation. Um, they're kept out of the uh, the bowels of the warehouse, and they're only allowed up on, on sort of the second floor in the the roof where the radar dishes are. So the uh, electronic intercept operation is is kept uh, quite separate from the the tunnel operation. So it's very compartmentalized. 
yeah, very enjoyable section of the book. Talk, reading those those passages. Um, yeah, and, and and again, I know I've already said this, but when a person reads this book, every once in a while they have to stop and say to themselves, "This is a real story. This all actually happened," which makes it all the more enjoyable. I mean. Phony yeah, radar I mean, <laughs> site, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, because a lot of it's comical too. Because you know, sometimes know. You, you end up with these Keystone Cop type situations, and you know, there's the time that, um, you know, they've got air conditioning in the tunnel, but um, they they um, fail to to recognize that all the heat from the equipment that they have to to you know operate the amplifiers and and so forth. Um, is is going to generate heat along the entire line of the um, of the tunnel, and you know when it snows, you then have like the snow's not sticking on top of the tunnel; it's pointing like a you know a neon light arrow pointing like there's a tunnel here. <laughs> and, uh, and you know people are just running around like uh, chickens with their heads cut off when they when they notice that. But fortunately, the the snow continues and and it gets covered up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, that's, that's just one of so many classic parts of this book and that's why uh i i liked it so much uh that so now you remind me of another topic i wanted to ask you about which was uh just the equipment that they use uh there's some fascinating passages in this book where you talk about well they're going to use this equipment and they're they're going to need you know x amount of this and x amount of that and then and then it turns out when they successfully tap the lines, everybody's saying, wow, this is a goldmine of intelligence um, that the Americans and British are getting on the Soviets. But there's one one uh, device that you described that if you could if you don't mind describing it again in this interview, it's something called Bumblebee. Oh, yeah. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah. The Bumble that was a demodulator, basically, because uh, okay. what happens is. Um, just to to give um, uh, more background for you, for your listeners, I mean the the amount of um, of communications they're intercepting. I mean the, the, these aren't a few phone lines, you know, belonging to the general or his aides or whatever. This these are three trunk lines which are carrying all the communications essentially of the uh, the Red Army in Germany, which is you know an, an enormous force of of uh, close to four hundred thousand. Um, forces in, in Germany and Poland and uh, Eastern Europe there. Um, you know, all these installations are, are linked in. So they are intercepting a thousand plus communications per day, um, which uh, some, uh, a lot of them are telephone, but a lot of them are also teletype um, communications, which um, are being sent, um, you know, or on these, on these cables and some of them are coded and all that. And, and the, um, all of this is being recorded. Some of it is being listened to live by a you know, team of, of translators there in Berlin. Um, but they have 150 recorders inside this operations room in the recorder in the, in the warehouse, just spinning all the time, these huge tapes being made on these Ampex recorders. And these tapes are being flown almost on a daily basis. Uh, the teletype is being flown to, to Washington DC and the, the voice communications are being flown to, to London and they have teams of, you know, several hundred and um, both in London and Washington of translators, of uh, transcribers, analysts going over this information. They don't really know where it's from exactly. They don't know it's a tunnel. Um, but um, for the teletype uh, communications, these are being um, processed at this, you know, old temporary uh, leftover World War II building on the, the National Mall in Washington, D.C., quite close to the Lincoln Memorial. And it's just a decrepit old building that, that used to be there. And to um, to uh, take apart the teletype, the, the teletype tape is being brought in, and, and each one of these tapes has, you know, sometimes six or a dozen different 
teletype communications on it, and they they have to be demodulated. So they had this um, amazing device that the CIA communications um, staff had, had put together that they nicknamed the Bumblebee because you know you, you just couldn't believe it was going to fly. Basically, it was this um, this uh, large um, device that that broke apart the communications so that they could be put onto individual. Um, tapes and then uh, uh, transcribed by the the team there. So um, it was, you know, a highly secret machine and only uh, the operators were allowed in that room. So, you know, all the the various people that are working, uh, transcribing the information would, would, you know, if they wanted anything, they would have to knock on the door and, you know, somebody would just open it a crack and take, you know, take whatever they needed. And, you know, all all this stuff is being uh, stored in, in, um, safes in the in this decrepit building and you know they have so much stuff there that you know it looks like the the floors are about to collapse at any moment so (laughs) yeah and you can tell i'm a fan of this book but that 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 topic which you cover quite a bit in the book it's just interesting you know so so uh creative so diligent and uh, so much secrecy and they're getting all this information and so just to circle back to this original this earlier idea uh if in, i think i think it's the case is that the soviets have still done nothing is, is that correct more or less so what happens is um you know the they they are trying to monitor some of the progress of the of the tunnel uh, as it's being dug and um you know blake is is at this point still in london uh in the uh, special section y that's overseeing um the the tunnel operation so he's in a great position to report progress but then um ironically he um well he's sent to berlin for a new assignment just as the tunnel is about to become uh, operational just as they've you know they've they've finished the the tunnel they bring in you know the british um this joint operation so the british were the ones with the great telecommunications experience because they had done a smaller tunnel operation in vienna and they brought in these specialists to actually do the taps which is a very intricate uh delicate operation you know 27 inches below the surface of a, a you know a major highway there in east berlin where you know people east german patrols are are walking overhead um but they they get the the tap done um but uh blake being in berlin at this point is no longer really in a position to to monitor the operation he can't because he's no longer responsible uh he he no longer has a need to know so the the station chief in berlin for the british peter lund um you know he can't go up to peter lund and say hey you know how's it going with the tunnel um, uh, because that, that would have been a red flag. Um, so the, the KGB's theory on this whole thing was, well, you know, this is the red Army's. uh, these are the red Army's communications primarily. Uh, and that's more or less true. But, um, of course this also includes the GRU, which is the Soviet military intelligence. The GRU deals with the KGB a lot. So, while the KGB's lines are protect, they're on these overhead lines that are not being tapped. These protected, uh, highly, um, highly prized lines. The the GRU communications with KGB in Germany are primarily over these these uh, underground lines that are being tapped. So a lot of the KGB's own communications are being intercepted, and uh, it it's not clear to me at all that the KGB understood this initially, um, because the the scale of of um, what the the West was capturing stunned first it stunned the CIA um, and um, British intelligence and the uh, the KGB didn't fully understand this initially at first but they they tried to to uh, give some some very uh, generic cryptic warnings to the uh, Red Army command that you know you should uh, you should be more careful about your telephone security, um, you know, but they don't say because the CIA and uh, SIS are, you know, <laughs> dug this tunnel or tapping into your lines. It's, it's more kind of vague. Uh, and, you know, in these bureaucracies, uh, those warnings are, are kind of lost. And so essentially um, very little was done. And um, after, after about six months of operation, the, the KGB realizes that, that something has to be done uh, to, put a stop to this, but they're still afraid of, of exposing Blake. 
Um, so they, they have to come up with a very elaborate scheme uh, to, uh, to discover, quote unquote, the, the tunnel in a way that, that protects Blake. And, you know, they have to wait for the right series events. Uh, you know, the, the weather, you know, it's a, as you know, kind of a, <laughs> a kind of a crazy story as to how that all happens, but they, you know, they need to, to wait for um, excuse to go out and send crews out to, to look for short circuits in the line. So that, that doesn't happen until the tunnel has been in operation for close to a year. Yeah. And the section that you're talking about is another great section of the book, which is very, very interesting. This sort of staged discovery of the, of the tap, so to speak. Um, but another part of the book I thought was so interesting is that the Soviets thought that if they bring this tapping and this tunnel to the attention of the press, it's going to cause a certain reaction that is uh, favorable to the Soviets, but it really didn't turn out that way, did it? No. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of things didn't turn out as they expected, both for the you know, CIA and the Soviets. Because, you know, Bill Harvey and Peter Lund were, they were pretty confident that, you know, once the Soviets find this tunnel, they're, they're going to keep it quiet, you know, because this is going to be huge embarrassment for them. So they weren't too worried about that. They were more concerned about the, you know, uh, physical security and Bill Harvey, you know, in typical fashion, cause he, he, you know, he loved weaponry of all kind. He, he had, you know, laid this, uh, explosive C5 explosive through the entire length of the tunnel. And he wanted to blow the tunnel, you know, once, once the Soviets discovered it, you know, with the Soviets inside. But, um, you know, he, he was, um, he didn't get approval for that. Um, but, um, the Soviets instead, um, the idea is, they, they're trying to pressure the West to get out of Berlin because, you know, Berlin is a vulnerable spot for them that, you know, they've got the iron curtain has been pretty effective, but Berlin is, is, you know, kind of this, um, thorn in the Soviet sides as, um, Nikita Khrushchev, the uh, Soviet leader, um, considers it. So he, you know, they're, they're trying to put pressure on the West to get out of Berlin. And this tunnel kind of plays into the narrative that the, the Soviets are trying to promote that the Americans, you know, they're not here to protect the Berliners. They're, they're using Berlin as this, as a nest of spies and the tunnel, you know, is, is, is made like, uh, exhibit a for, for this story that, well, it's not really a story cause it's true, but they, they want to, to, to make it, uh, clear to the world that, that the, um, the CIA uh, is involved in this nefarious espionage operation in Berlin and how dare they, uh, violate East German sovereignty, and so they, the um, right after the tunnel is discovered, they call every reporter in Berlin on you know, very short notice, and and summon them to uh, the, the Karlshorst, which is the the Red Army and, and KGB headquarters in in Berlin, and for this this press conference, the, the Soviets hadn't held a press conference at that point in about six years in in Berlin for for Western reporters, but they're all summoned on short notice and. You know the red uh, red army colonel brings them out to the site of the the tunnel at you know at night it's all lit up and they they actually bring the reporters down into the tunnel and you know they're they uh, you know they they are just beating the drum about what an outrage this is and um but as it as it turns out um in the west the 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 coverage is is quite positive because up to this point the CIA really hadn't um you know in the eyes of western uh press at least had, had not accomplished a whole hot, uh, a whole lot of anything. Um, and this was like, looked like an operation where they'd finally pulled a fast one on this, on the KGB, um, which was like the, you know, the, the, you know, the invulnerable KGB as it was considered in the, <coughs> excuse me, in those days. So, um, uh, it, it, instead, you know, the stories in the West are, Hey, look at that. The, the Americans aren't so pathetic after all. They've, they've actually pulled off this really cagey operation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that section of the book, the way, uh, just like you said, and, and there's a lot of parts of this book where the reader says, okay, so now this is going to happen. And, but then it doesn't, and it just makes it even more enjoyable to read it. Uh, again, right. we're talking about the book entitled betrayal in Berlin. 
the true story of the Cold War's most audacious espionage operation. We're speaking with the author, Steve Vogel. Um, so, you know, what I wanted to ask you also, you kind of touch on it in the book, is that do you feel that the tunnel operation is regarded as a success through the eyes of the Americans now nowadays? Do you think it is? Well, you know, it's largely been forgotten. You know, it went through a lot of different iterations. So you had that initial phase there where, oh, this is considered a, you know, a success in the West, in the, in the public eyes. Because I mean, the, the, the discovery of the, of the tunnel is a huge story uh, in the West. I mean, it was really the largest um, espionage story of the day until the U-2 shoot down a few years later. So um, they, they kind of bask in that. And, you know, the uh, Alan Dulles um, um, is is elated because this this allows him to go to Congress and get less of a hard time and, and easier to get more funding for, for the CIA. Um, but uh, things change dramatically, of course, um, five years later, in 1961, um, as, as the book describes, when, when George Blake is uh, suspected and then exposed and, and then, you know, arrested, um, by, by the, the British and, and put on trial. Now he, he, um, he confesses very quickly in, in interrogations, uh, with, uh, um, the British that he had blown the tunnel, um, you know, from, from the start. And this is, this is a shock. Um, CIA was, you know, Bill Harvey just exploded, um, you know, at the news, he was not, uh, he was not somebody who, who took news like that calmly. Um, but the, um, the, um, there was a lot of, obviously quite, quite a lot of concern at that point then, you know, was this disinformation? Um, and the CIA, CIA, this, this news, by the way, that Blake had exposed the tunnel is not revealed to the public. So it's, yeah, it's not until, you know, moving forward in this, in the story when, um, of course, Blake is, is given this very lengthy prison sentence. And then, you know, another remarkable, <laughs> one of these, you can't really believe it type events. He manages to escape from prison in 1966 and, and make his way um, eventually to um, Moscow. And it's not until this interview with his Vestia in 1970 that he, he reveals, you know, publicly that the tunnel had been betrayed from the start. So at that point, then the the tunnel um, becomes this laughing stock. Um, it's like, oh, the, you know, the the uh, the Americans were played the whole time by the KGB. You know, they they were, you know, they were completely, you know, and, and so you have a lot of um, uh, press reports, uh, 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 different um, books, uh, you know, covering espionage that that pretty much give this flat out description that you know the whole thing was a farce and it was a KGB disinformation from the start, blah, blah, blah. And so that kind of became the accepted narrative. Um, and to the extent, the extent that the tunnel was remembered because it, it kind of faded, uh, into memory. Um, it was more or less considered a, you know, a joke a, or just, you know, another example of KGB, um, um, just, um, um, just the KGB's uh, amazing skills and how they completely outdo the, the CIA. So it's really only, um, uh, with the uh, the end of the Cold War, that um, more access to records uh, uh, is is given both uh, on the Russian side. Initially, there was um, and the uh, George Blake's handler Sergei Kondrashov um, works on a, a history of Berlin espionage with um, one of his CIA counterparts, Dave Murphy, who who was also uh, my dad's boss, and. Um, you know, he he um, basically describes how uh, how they were af uh, afraid to do anything about the uh, the tunnel because of uh, the, the possibility of exposing Blake. And then um, it, the interviews I've I've done with um, well with Blake and with um, others involved, and um, also an analysis of the information that was done by the CIA and uh, British intelligence. Um, when you think about it if the Soviets had tried to put uh, disinformation into that, you're, you're talking about 400,000, you know, over a thousand communications a day. So if they, if they put disinformation into say five conversations or five 
it's going to be contradicted by the um, you know other 955 conversations <laughs> that are true. They they can't put everybody in on the you can't have like thousands of of soldiers all over East Germany. You know, oh wink wink. You know, the, you know putting putting out false information because that would that would you know completely. Um, defeat the purpose of protecting Blake because it would become very quick, uh, clear quickly that there'd been a leak. So um, basically the KGB's tie, uh, hands were tied and this is what um, all the, the evidence shows. And so now um, I think um, it, it, it's clear. I, I think that the book makes a, a pretty strong case that um, the, the tunnel information was genuine that the, so uh, there's no uh, evidence at all that anything was uh that any bad information was put in and that um, the, the tunnel essentially provides the West with an enormous amount of information about the Red Army's capabilities and, um, you know, it's basically its order of battle. But pos- probably the most inf- important thing it, it um, provides is the uh, confidence that the Soviets are not planning an attack on, on the West. And this, this gives uh, Eisenhower, um, you know, the, a great, great deal of, of confidence uh, that you know he doesn't need to to order his own strike and it really um we also get a lot of information about uh the kremlin and khrushchev because their communications back with with moscow and information about the soviet nuclear uh, program so they 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 draw quite a bit about it in fact it takes another two years after the tunnel is discovered to, to process all the information and you know richard helms um, would later say that um the tunnel provided intelligence that was still being used a decade or more later. Wow. Yeah. Now in the, in the latter part of the book, uh, and again, this book is just packed with plot twists and you kind of alluded to this next section, which I found so interesting is that, uh, George Blake is finally identified as a mole, but he was identified by, Another spy? Is that how it happened? Yeah, um, it was a, a Polish um, military intelligence officer who um, who has um, who approaches the West um, starting in the late 1950s, and he's he's giving them he's telling them basically that you know the KGB has a mole inside um, British intelligence, and he gives them. He shows them documents that this mole has provided, and George Blake is one of the very few people that who would have had access to that information. So the CIA who gets this information from the the, the Polish um, uh, military intelligence officer who who would eventually defect to the West, um, you know, British intelligence at first dismisses the idea that that Blake could be a, a spy because he's so highly regarded and you know it just doesn't seem possible to them that and um it takes a while uh but but finally um after more insistent reporting from from this Polish source um you know the British conduct another investigation and you know finally begin finding some smoking guns that are really uh pointing to Blake and he is in he's assigned to to uh, Lebanon at this point, and he's lured back to London, and um, you know, a trap is sprung, and he, uh, you know, eventually, well, actually, not even eventually, uh, after three days, he he basically, um, all of a sudden, just says, "Yes, I did it." He just like confesses, and it's, it's kind of a remarkable story how that all happens—the whole yeah interrogation and everything. Yeah, and it's and I I really like this last section of the book. Um, the the fact so you re, here you here I am the reader and I I read in the book okay wow George Blake was just sentenced to over forty years in prison and again you think okay I think this is we're, we're seeing some closure here but as you mentioned a few minutes ago he actually escapes from prison <laughs> and it's just yeah. another incredibly interesting twist to the story. Um, and the way you explain it in the book, it's it's just really exciting. Um, 
obviously it's not a good it's not great when somebody who's committed a crime escapes but just the way you explain it in the book because there are passages in the book where i think i wonder is george blake sort of like a low-key person because he seems to do these very adventurous things and do you feel because i know you interviewed him did you feel that he's a low-key person who who just happens to like to do very daring things or it seems like an interesting contrast of two different uh personalities yeah you know it's it's funny because he's in many ways he's he's mild-mannered um you know he's very uh not excitable and he he kind of exudes um he he, uh a a warmness i guess you could say he a lot of people um who met him over the years found him charming i mean he was he's good at at just sort of um uh getting people to open up and um uh, but at the same time kind of keeping himself as sort of a low key presence. Um, and I think yeah, at the same time, he, he had lived so much excitement even by the time he was 14, you know, in, in Egypt and, you know, it, it's a, with the Dutch resistance and then his escape across the entire continent of Europe, across the, the Pyrenees, snow covered Pyrenees to escape the Nazis. And, you know, you know, even well before, all this happens with the tunnel and, and, uh, his arrest and all that. He, he's led this remarkable, and I think he did truly become kind of, and he, he says as much that he became a little bit addicted to that, that sort of, that rush of, of, um, excitement. And, um, you know, I think, um, I think that, that, that's part of what, um, that led him on the, on the path he took, but it, it also enables him once he's, at this in in prison he's able to to charm his fellow prisoners who um generally when you have like a a traitor a spy assigned to to prison they're they're they could be in, in great danger because uh uh they they could be attacked by other prisoners and that, that's happened um but um uh, in this case blake manages to make a lot of friends of, across the political spectrum from people you know far on the left to people far on the right they all the one thing they all in, cap, in common was that they all liked blake and you know he he was teaching he'd teach prisoners um um languages he'd, he'd hold a french class or a german class or he'd help them write letters to their lawyers he you know he was always kind of the the shoulder that they could cry on type of person. And, um, you know, even the guards liked him. <laughs> so he, he's, he's able to eventually recruit some people to, to help him pull off this escape. It's pretty remarkable. And it was a huge embarrassment and disgrace for, you know, the British, um, home office, the, the all the, 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 which oversaw the prisons, it was just an, an enormous, um, scandal. And, you know, to this day in, 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 Great Britain, where George Blake is is much better known than he is in the United States. You know, it, people still absolutely pull out their hair at the idea that Blake managed to escape and is still, you know, out there living living in a dacha outside of Moscow. Yeah, so just one of many many great sections in this book. I enjoyed that 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 section so much. The the way you describe all the things that it took to make the escape actually happen. So. Um, kind of watching this clock out of the corner of my eye i can't believe that we've we're we're almost out of time um i just want to say again we're talking with steve vogel who is the author of betrayal in berlin the true story of the cold war's most audacious espionage espionage operation and i'm encouraging everybody to go out and get a copy of this book i'm positive you're going to enjoy it so um steve i wanted to ask you i enjoyed this book so much Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. What's coming up from your world? You know, I, uh, I'm actually just still kind of re- recuperating a little bit from putting this together. I'm, I'm catching up on some smaller projects. You know, I'm, I'm sort of um, thinking about um, you know doing some more uh, work on other um, espionage operations, but I really haven't narrowed it down yet. I'm, you know, I've sort of jumped around from. Uh, you know, I think it's part of being a journalist is that you kind of like, you get interested in a lot of different topics. So, I mean, you know, my last book was about the war of 1812, the, the, you know, the capture of Washington uh, by the British. And then another book about, you know, the, the Pentagon, the construction and during world war two, and then through the nine 11 attack. So, you know, I, I don't know, I might, I might stay with this, this general theme, or I might end up doing something completely different, but you know, I'm, 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 
I'm starting now to to realize I, I need to come up with something. So <laughs> I'll keep you posted. Yeah, well, whatever you do come up with, uh, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it thoroughly. And uh, I can't believe how fast this time, I'm just looking at this clock again. I can't believe how fast this time passed. Um, so I just want to close by thanking you once again for taking time out to chat with us a little bit about this book, uh, Betrayal in Berlin. It's a fantastic book. Um, and I hope our paths will cross again soon. Yeah, likewise, Porter. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Okay. Well, that's the end of our interview for today. And I think we're going to sign off. Thank you, Steve. Thank you.